You're listening to the Northwestern Campus Ministry Podcast from Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa. Northwestern Campus Ministry exists to send students out as those rooted, built up, and established in Christ for God's glory and for the sake of the world. Thanks for listening and enjoy this recent message from our Christian Formation Program. Hey, really excited to introduce to you our guest, our friend and brother in Christ who's come from Atlanta, got into the Hampton Inn downtown at uh, the ripe time of 1.30 a.m. Did anybody stay up later than uh, Pastor Gilliard last night? Got in at 1.30, so we're so privileged to to have him with us. Uh, Pastor Gilliard, he is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation Initiative with the Evangelical Covenant Church. Uh, He's earned his bachelor's degree from Georgia State University, master's from East Tennessee State University, MDiv from North Park, a place where he actually adjuncts as a professor in ethics and theology and reconciliation. He's an ordained minister in the ECC, and he's pastored in places like Atlanta, where he currently resides, Chicago and Oakland. He's also been a campus minister at North Park University. He's authored a couple books, one that just came out this last August, September called Subversive Witness that's been really challenging and encouraging me in a lot of ways. He's uh, a board of director uh, for the CCDA, the Christian Community Development Association, and also a board of director for the Evangelicals for Justice board. He's an award-winning leader in in the church, uh, the Huffington Post, the ECC, and Outreach Magazine have, have lifted these awards up. And so we are so privileged to have Reverend Gilliard with us this morning. Can you join me in extending a warm welcome? Uh, good morning, friends. I am excited to be with you. Um, and as we start off, I want to just thank uh, Pastor Mark for some of the framing and some of the language because I'm really going to try to build on that language. Um, Some of the foundational truths I want to state before going into the passage are that we live in a world that teaches us that we don't belong to each other. But the foundational biblical truth is that we belong to one another and that our flourishing is tied up to each other's flourishing. Um, One of the things that we are going to see in this uh, passage is the way in which Scripture is very clear. Satan has one missional purpose, and that is to kill, steal, and destroy our witness in the world. And one of the ways that we see that is through the logic of supremacy. And we're going to unpack that in this passage uh, today. So in this passage, we're going to go through Exodus 1-6 through 2-10. I'm not going to read the entire passage because that would take up all of our chapel time. Um, so, but in this passage, it's, it's a passage of how Moses is born into the world. And in this passage, we see that there is a flourishing in Egyptian empire. And the Egyptian empire's flourishing is all predicated, is all dependent upon the dehumanization of their Hebrew neighbors. The Egyptians have created a prosperous, wealthy empire, and everything that they have is dependent upon the enslavement and the dehumanization of their Hebrew neighbors, who they have come to believe are inferior people, people who are not equitably made in the image of God 
as they are. And so supremacy, I want to start as the foundation. Supremacy is the denial of the biblical truth that we find in Genesis that tells us that all people, regardless of their gender, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their ability, able-bodiedness, their cognition, are equitably made in the image of God. So any logic of supremacy is a denial of that biblical truth. And we see this happening in Egypt. And the Egyptian empire is prospering because of it. So what we see are two different ways of being in the world. There is a way of being that comes out of empire that says that certain people are more reflective of the image of God, certain people are more worthy of being dignified and treated with honor and respect and uh, their humanity being affirmed. And then there's this kingdom logic which says that all people are equitably made in the image of God, that all of us belong to one another, and our flourishing and our prosperity is bound up with each other's flourishing and prosperity. So these are these two different operative logics that we're going to see at play in this passage. And there's this quote by a scholar by the name of Daniel Grudy that's helpful for us to make this even more clear. He says, in the Bible, Egypt is the first in the series of empires including Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, that embody power structures that benefit the elite, enslave the poor, and dominate the meek. The notion of empire often describes political entities, but it is not limited to them. And this is the key part. He says, symbolically, the empire represents any power that aggregates to itself the power that belongs to God alone or any group or institution that subjugates the poor and the needy for its own advantages. So that's what we're seeing in this passage. So the Egyptian empire has been built and fortified on the dehumanization of their Hebrew neighbors. And Moses' mom ultimately becomes pregnant and she has uh, Moses in her belly and she's about to have Moses, but there's a law that's been passed in Egypt. And the law says that all Hebrew boys, Hebrew, and boys must be put to death just because of their ethnic identity and their gender. So Moses is in this, uh, Moses' mom is in this reality where she loves God, where she's trying to faithfully follow Jesus, but she lives in an unjust society. The society has literally created a law that says that she must be, she must kill her child just because of his ethnic identity and his gender. So she's in this crazy situation. How do I faithfully follow Jesus and how do I love my beloved child in my belly? Is it possible for me to believe that the gospel is good news in this reality? And so she's forced with this impossible situation. She either has to put her child to death or she has to break the law. How do you think about what it means to faithfully follow Jesus in such an impossible situation? And that's what Moses' mom is confronted with. And she prays and she discerns and ultimately the spirit of God reveals to her that the law is so unjust, that the law is so anti-gospel that she needs to break the law in order to preserve the life of her precious child. And so Moses' mom ultimately decides to break the law, and then she has Moses. She doesn't put him to death. She harbors him as a fugitive for as long as she can, and then it gets to the point that Moses got so big 
that she no longer could keep him secret. And at that point, she has to realize her own human limitations. And the reality is, sisters and brothers, at some point in our lives, we all have to realize that we have limitations as human beings, that we can only go so far. And at that point, we have to realize our dependence upon God and turn our lives over and the most precious things in our lives over to Jesus and trust that the Spirit is going to sustain them and preserve them. And that's what she does with Moses. So she ultimately bits builds this makeshift basket, and she puts Moses into it, and she puts him into the river, and she puts him in the Nile, and ultimately she has to turn Moses over to the Holy Spirit. And this is where the passage really starts to get interesting, in my opinion. Um, We see, um, so this is just some of the backdrop of what I was just saying, but this is where the passage really starts to get interesting, in my opinion. So when Moses puts when Moses' mom puts him into the basket, think about all the things that could have happened to Moses. The basket could have tipped over and Moses could have drowned. Moses could have been discovered by a sea creature and he could have been eaten. Moses could have done what ultimately happens, the basket drifts all the way to the riverbanks, and it drifts to where you and I would think would be the absolute worst place that the basket could drift to. It drifts to Pharaoh's house, the house in which the decree comes that Moses must be put to death. That's where the Spirit of God directs the basket. And then you know what's even more funny is, and ironic is that the person who finds the basket is probably the second worst person who could have possibly found the basket. It's Pharaoh's daughter. So think about this. Pharaoh makes a law and says that all Hebrew boys must be put to death. If he creates a law that's rooted in this kind of bigotry and this kind of anti-gospel logic, can you think about the ways that he had taught his daughter to think about Hebrew people? Can you think about the dehumanizing conversations they had over dinner when he was discipling her? And I'm using that language intentionally because in the church, we usually only think about discipleship as the good things about Jesus we put into our lives. But if we step back and actually use the Webster definition of discipleship, it's to teach, train, and instruct someone to interact in a certain way. So Pharaoh had discipled his daughter to carry on a legacy of bigotry and hatred. He had told her that if she didn't see Hebrew people as inferior people, that she was actually putting the prosperity and the stability of the Egyptian empire at risk. She had been discipled to see all Hebrew boys as expendable people, as people whose lives didn't matter, who had no value outside their ability to be exploited for their labor. That's what we're talking about. That's the kind of discipleship that she had gotten. Very anti-gospel discipleship, but she was discipled to see Moses and to interact with Moses in a certain way. And we see this when she discovers the basket. The first thing she does when she pick, uh, the basket comes to the banks, she says, this must be one of those Hebrew babies. So this is an articulation that she knows what she's supposed to do when she sees a Hebrew baby. She knows that she's supposed to respond in a certain way, and she also knows that somebody broke the law. Because as a Hebrew male boy, he should have already been put to death. But he wasn't. He was on the banks of the river in front of her. And when she opens the basket, this is where we actually see the power of God at work. You see, sisters and brothers, the good news of the gospel is that the Holy Spirit has the power to break generational cycles of bigotry. 
The Holy Spirit has the power to transform our vision. When we've grown up in a household or in a society or in a culture that has told us that certain people are less than us, that certain people aren't as reflective of the image of God as we are, as certain people have no real value but to be exploited for their labor, the Holy Spirit has the power to transform our vision. It has the power to renew our minds. Pastor Mark was telling me that y'all have been doing a study on Romans 12, and Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a perfect articulation of this. The gospel tells us that the world we live in has a certain priority and a certain orientation, and that orientation is orientation that tells us that we do not belong to one another. That orientation tells us that certain people are more reflective of God's image than other people. That orientation tells us to think in us and them categories, as opposed to the gospel truth, which is there is no us in them, there is only an us, and we belong to one another. And we see in this passage how that starts to play out. Um, I'll come, let me go back to this. Um, and so we see in this passage how it starts to play out. So Pharaoh's daughter sees the basket. She opens the basket. And when she sees, she looks into the basket, she doesn't see somebody who is inferior to her. She doesn't see a child who has no value except to be exploited for his labor. She sees somebody else who is made in the image of God. She sees somebody else whose life has purpose and value and whose life is ultimately connected to her life. And what she does in response is one of the most prophetic moments in Scripture. Pharaoh's daughter, who has everything to risk by choosing to identify with this Hebrew boy that she was told to see as expendable, who she was told to see as having no value, she decides to identify with Moses. And instead of killing him, instead of following her father's orders, she chooses to identify with Moses and to actually save his life. And in doing so, I want you to think about everything she puts at risk. Pharaoh's daughter is in line to become the inheritor of all of Pharaoh's wealth. Pharaoh's daughter is the one who receives the most direct benefits from the oppressive empire that her father uh, built. Pharaoh's daughter has all of the incentive to just blindly follow what her father said and have no conscience about it. But the spirit troubles the waters of belonging and ultimately reveals to her that there is no us in them and that there are no expendable people within the kingdom of God. And so instead of doing what her father told her, and I know we all grew up in nice Sunday school services where they always told us that you always obey your parents and that you always uh, obey the law. I love this passage in part because it denies both of those things. <laughs> and it tells us that there is a time where God is calling us to act out in prophetic ways and to bear witness to who and whose we are by how we choose to live and love in a society that is oriented in a different way. You see, that's a radical message. It might just sound subtle in this, but to live in a way that say that, you know what, I'm willing to follow what Jesus and the Holy Spirit are prompting me to, even when my parents have told me something different, that's going to cause some problems in some of our households. To believe that sometimes Worldly legislation is so anti-gospel that we are supposed to break the law to bear witness to the fact that we are kingdom citizens first and foremost, not citizens of any worldly empire. That is a prophetic st statement, and it's a statement that really is rooted in John 13, 34, and 35, where Jesus comes and he gives us a new commandment, and he says, the new commandment is to love one another as I have loved you, and by this 
When we love one another like this, it says the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples. You see, Pharaoh's daughter had an opportunity to bear witness to the fact that she was rooted in the citizenship of the Egyptian empire or that her vision had been transformed by the power of the spirit and that God was doing something new. God was forming a new way of belonging, a new way of believing, a new way of bearing witness to the fact that we belong to one another. And in doing so, she risked a lot. And I think her risks are prophetic statement to us today because we also live in a society that teaches us that we don't belong to each other. We also live in a society that has this deep and dark history of supremacy. And when we take that history seriously, it should be instructive for us about what it means to live and love in a way that the world knows that we belong to Jesus first and foremost. So when we talk about a logic of supremacy, again, I want to double down on this before we go into these next examples. The logic of supremacy is a denial of the biblical truth that all people are equitably made in the image of God and that we belong to one another. When we see this play out in our nation, it starts with the experience of our indigenous sisters and brothers who in our constitution are referred to as merciless Indian savages. That is a denial of the image of God in our indigenous sisters and brothers. And it led to genocide, and it led to murder and exploitation, and it led to the creation of indigenous boarding schools, where the mantra of the indigenous boarding schools were to kill the Indian and to save the man. We fostered this image of our brothers and sisters as savages, as heathens, as people who were not equitably made of the image of God. And because of that, it distorted our vision and our understanding of how we're connected to them. This legacy continues to expand into our Asian American sisters and brothers who were depicted as all these anti-human, in all these anti-human ways. And the top image, we see uh, Chinese people depicted as people who eat rats. In the bottom image, we see it says no dogs and Chinese allowed. The equation, the equitable, uh, we start to compare them to animals as a way of dehumanizing. We need to understand this legacy. We need to understand the way that this sin has established a stronghold within our society and how that sin ultimately led to oppressive legislation that, again, denied the image of God in our sisters and brothers. So this, this notion that our Chinese sisters and brothers are not equitably made in the image of God, are not truly ever capable of becoming U.S. citizens. They are going to always be perpetual foreigners. We saw over the last two years this anti-Asian sentiment that rose up in our country in association with the emergence of COVID-19. We need to understand that this has deep, dark roots in our history, and there's a reason why the sentiment just bubbles up and people start to respond to our sisters and brothers in ways as if they don't belong to, to us, that they are not truly citizens of this country and citizens of the kingdom of God. We have to do this deep, dark research to understand what does it mean for us to live and love in a way that the world knows that we belong to Jesus. We see this propaganda even um, inspired by one of our most beloved 
children's artist in our country. Our beloved Dr. Seuss was actually hired to create these propaganda pieces that ultimately depicted uh, our Japanese sisters and brothers as perpetual foreigners, people who could never truly be a part of the U.S. And this propaganda helped drive the Japanese internment camps, where we saw over 120,000 Japanese, Amer Japanese um, people, most of which were U.S. citizens, rounded up and forced into these internment camps, which were really incarceration camps, and they were all denied judicial uh, due process. And we see, again, this anti-gospel sentiment that certain people aren't truly reflective of the image of God and don't belong to one another. We continue to see this. Uh, this is Black History Month, and we see this notion within our African-American community and the way in which African-Americans have been treated in this country. We all know that at one point, African-Americans were legally determined to be property instead of people. And we see there's another dark part of this history that we don't know as well, and there was this era of lynching where there was, was this horrid response to the African-American community to try to force fear and intimidation upon them to ultimately deny the image of God in them. And we saw this kind of uh, logic reinforced not only in the laws, but also in the rhetoric of our politicians. And so this is a quote from the governor of Mississippi in 1907. And he says, if it is necessary, every Negro in the state will be lynched and it will be done to maintain white supremacy. You see, this isn't even subtle. This is overt anti-gospel rhetoric that is coming from political leaders that is rooted in the logic of empire and not in the logic of kingdom. And when we see that this type of rhetoric is espoused, what we see is the impact of sin in our world and in our country. This is a picture of what was known as a spectacle lynching. Spectacle lynchings were when black people would be killed, tortured, and maimed for entertainment. And you would have large crowds who would come around in a carnival-like atmosphere. And there would be professional photographers who were there to photograph the lynchings. And those lynchings would be turned into postcards. And those postcards would be sold as souvenirs and, invite, and sent out to invite people to future lynchings, where there will all be this joyous atmosphere that was created all around the killing and torture of black people. The largest spectacle lynching in our country's history had over 20,000 people present at it. This was a normative experience, so much so that theologian Reinhold Niebuhr says, if there was a drunken orgy somewhere, I would bet 10 to 1 a church member was not in it. But if there was a lynching, I would bet 10 to 1 a church member was in it. You see, this was not something that was disconnected from Christianity. This was not something that was disconnected from our faith. Spectacle lynchings most oftentimes took place on Sunday afternoon after church, and they were oftentimes well attended by white Christians. When we talk about being reconciled to be reconcilers and kingdom people, these are not easy conversations to have, but they are requisite conversations if we're going to live into what the gospel calls us to be in the world. We're called to be a transformative presence in the world that bears witness to the fact that we do belong to one another and that we are not rooted in an imperial logic that teaches us to see each other with the suspicion and to act as if we're us against them because there is no them in the kingdom. 
We see this kind of logic continued to play out with the treatment of our Latin community, our, uh, and we see the ways in which land has been stolen from our Latin American brothers and sisters, and the way in which they have been displaced and moved, and we see this play out through oppressive legislation like the Bracero Program and Operation Wetback, where we recruited folks to cross the border just to exploit them for their labor, and when we no longer needed them, we kicked them out. And there is this back and forth reality where we have to really understand that we have not faithfully lived into the missional purpose of the gospel. And I believe this, and I want to make this very clear, the missional purpose of the church is to make God's name known and love shown throughout the world. That's who we're supposed to be. And when we conform to the patterns of this world and we allow logics of supremacy to go on in our midst, and we don't speak out and say, this isn't the way that God intends things to be. This is not the people that God has commissioned us to be in the world. We become complicit with sin instead of being reconcilers and ambassadors of the kingdom. And so we see this also with the separation of families at the border. All of these realities are realities that just do not bear witness to what we're supposed to be in the world. And so we have to take seriously then that when one benefits from and finds comfort within the confines of empire, it becomes extremely difficult to divest ourselves from the empire and to bear witness to who we are supposed to be in the world. It becomes very hard to bear witness to the fact that we are kingdom people when we get immersed in the trappings and the comforts and the, the benefits of being connected to the empire. We see this play out in ways in this passage where I love, love, love this passage because one of the things that happens in this passage is when you pay, pay attention to the movement of God, one of the crazy subversive things about this passage is there is not one man who does what they're supposed to do in this whole passage. It's only women who are willing to prophetically stand up and speak the truth of the gospel when it could cost them something. First, you have the two Hebrew midwives who are instructed personally by Pharaoh to kill the Egyptian boys, but they choose not to. And it says that they did not do what Pharaoh told them to do because they fear God more than they feared the empire. And that's the first foundational truth of who we've got to be. We've got to be people who fear God more than we do the powers of this world. And when we do, we get a chance to be prophetically used by God. We see uh, Moses' mom choose to break the law because the Spirit led her to. And we also see Moses' sister come alongside and actually plays a pivotal role in uh, shaping the outcome of this passage. So I love that it's the women who actually bear witness to who, the king, uh, who God is and what the Spirit is directing them to. Um, and then I also love, sorry, I'll go back just so you can see that. Um, but I love the fact that there is a law that emerges that separates Moses from his mom, but we see the Spirit of God at work in the land, and he ultimately transforms it so that the same empire that separates Moses from his mom ultimately reconciles them and ultimately pays Moses' mom to raise Moses, even though she had been separated from her son because of an unjust, oppressive law. And so I'm going to close by watching this quick video that puts together so much of what I tried to say more eloquently than what I did. And then I'll come back with a few comments and invite Pastor Mark to close. A lot of people see justice as the most futile thing you can do with your life. 
give your life completely to business and you see the money piling up. Be a health nut, eat right, go to the gym, and your muscles will grow and your body will look good and you'll see results. But when it comes to justice, it seems like you just can't get ahead. You patch up one hole and something else rips open. You bring peace to one region and war breaks out in another. You rebuild after an earthquake and a tsunami hits. And you work and you work and you work and there's never any profit. There's no bank where you can store a surplus amount of justice in. Stability is never permanent. Something always tips and people always ask, is it even worth it? And that question though understandable, it's, I mean, quite frankly, it's ridiculous. And it rarely comes from those who are actually tired from pursuing justice and not just tired of the idea. It rarely comes from people who've labored for years and have good reason to ask it. And you know what they never ask? Those type of people become friends with those who suffer. Family because it's one thing to wonder if someone else's freedom is worth fighting for. But when you begin to identify with that someone else, commune with them, that's when the question is no longer worth asking. That's when it becomes offensive even. What do you mean, is it worth my time? That doesn't even deserve an answer. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how many times you fail. I don't care how little progress is made. You never stop fighting for your own. For your own. And if there is one biblical truth that we have failed to receive in the Western church is that we are each other's own, that we belong to one another. So that when we see oppression and injustice happening to communities that are not ours, to our neighbors who are different than us, we have a responsibility to step up, speak up, and demonstrate the love of God in the face of that injustice. That is how the world comes to know that we belong to Jesus. We are not supposed to be like the Egyptians who turn a blind eye to the suffering of their Hebrew neighbors because it doesn't impact us. Everything in this world teaches us that blood is thicker than water. That is everything outside the scriptures. The scriptures tell us that the baptismal waters are thicker than our ancestral bloodlines, and it's baptism that actually redefines who family is for us as the people of God. And if we were to go out into the world and bear witness to our baptismal identity and to realize that when injustice happens anywhere to any of our neighbors, it's happening to us because we are interconnected people, then the world will see the hope that the church is supposed to be in the world. Then the church will recognize how the Spirit is at work reconciling all things to God through the church. Then the world will want to know why the church lives and loves in the way that it does, and we get a chance to invite those brothers and sisters into the family of God to live on mission with us. This is the beautiful story of the gospel, that God is at work, God is more powerful than evil, that God is a way-making God that makes a way when everything seems that like death has the final word, the gospel reveals a different truth to us and the hope for the world is supposed to be the church, but we have to be rooted in our mission and understand who and whose we are and what we're commissioned to be in a world that desperately needs to see something different.